right. So in the notes, so far the encouragements or the exhortations, warnings, and encouragements thus far. So we talked about Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And that term, as we discussed, drifting away, referred to a gradual, unperceptible, imperceptible uh, drifting away into error and into disobedience. Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Hebrews 3.12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Hebrews chapter 3.13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So we've discussed and talked about all of these. It's weird because you guys are sitting over there, and yet I have to look at the camera over there. So it's kind of bizarre. Um, so we've talked about all of these at length, and so there's no need to, you know, to rehash many of this. But it's clear here that the author is exhorting and cautioning believers here, specifically Messianic Hebrew Jews, uh, to press on and to not give up. While cultures change and surroundings change, what does not change from era to era and culture to culture is people's hearts and their struggles. So though their culture was different than ours, right, they were, they were Jewish, they were living in the ancient Hellenistic world. Their struggles, though calibrating differently, were the same as ours. Even though, you know, we're living 2,000 years later, we still have the same sinful heart, and we still have the same desires and the same passions and lusts, and so we have the same struggles. And the, even though these warnings are, are tailored and targeting the Hellenistic Jewish community and the diaspora, those same warnings apply to us as well because we are of the same stock. We are all human. Okay. But let's heed what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 2. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath is he who fears an oath. Okay, so what, what do you think Solomon is saying there uh, in those verses? What's, what, what's he saying there? Is That's right. The common experiences of life happen to us all. And so we all have to... We all have to be prepared to face them. Now we have to be, now the Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, had to be prepared to face them within the, con within the context of their own culture and time. Well, the same is true to us. Okay. So on our journey to our heavenly destination, these experiences are exponentially intensified. Why? Because whether the child of God believes it or not, he or she has been taken out of the world and placed contra mundum. That contramundum is Latin for against the world. 
right? We are to stand in opposition to the world order, which is under the direct control at this time of Satan. And so we are aligned against the world power and against the world authority. In your case, believer, you have become the mortal enemy of the world, and the world wants you discouraged, defeated, and it wants you dead. And it does not even matter if you get so discouraged that you surrender and seek terms of peace with the world. And so this is, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews was warning the believers against, of being so worn down uh, and, and so distracted. You see, that's what happens, is you're on course, you're, you know, you've got, using the nautical term there of drifting away, your anchor is set, and the way you hold your course in ancient times, what was called line of sight or dead reckoning, right? So if you were to, if you were to take in, in, in nautical terms, they have these things called a hand compass, right? So if you take your hand compass and you line up two, two lines of sight, let's say you're focused on a lighthouse there and a tall office building there and you take your compass readings and then you go to your chart find those bearings and draw those lines way that where they intersect is where you are right and that's how you that's how you hold your position but you have to be you have to be careful because there is a tendency to drift because of currents wind things like that and so what happens is is the drift begins when we stop paying attention to those fixed lines of navigation, those fixed lines of sight. So once that happens, because we, we get distracted, and then we start slipping away, we get discouraged, and then we just give up and go back to the things of the world. And I've seen it happen time and time again. And Truth be told, it's happened to me a few times over the course of my walk with Christ. Okay. All right. So uh, where was I? Point seven. On our journey to our heavenly destination, these experiences are exponentially intensified. Okay, we've covered that. Okay, per point nine, and it does not even matter if you get so discouraged that you surrender and seek terms of peace with the world so as to be able to live out the rest of your life in peace. You are still its mortal enemy and at any moment subject to being revitalized for the battle by God and thus you must die. So this is actually a quote, I believe it's from uh, Matthew Henry, part of his quote. So the point that he's trying to make there is that, you know what, God has a purpose for you. First of all, God has adopted you as his child, entirely an act of grace, entirely an act of his will. So you, there's nothing you can do that's, that's going to change that. Even if you fall away into extreme carnality, you know, the carnal Christian, uh, you, it must be understood that God is, is not going to let you drift off to the point where you could lose your salvation if it were possible. But at any given point in time, 
he may use that drift to snap you back and use you for his purpose that he has called you for. That's one thing that every believer needs to get straight in their mind, that God called you for a specific reason. He has a specific task that each one of us is destined to accomplish, and we will accomplish it, right? Okay. So again, this is, again, following with the, with the quote, I believe it's Matthew Henry, though you may not have come to fully realize this truth. There is only one direction for you to go, and that is onward. You cannot reverse direction. You cannot choose to go back to the leaks in Egypt. Because it does not matter if you return in defeat and surrender, you are now and forever the mortal enemy of the world, and thus you must die. This is part of the overall point that the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to us, that we have to keep going. So last week, as we opened up uh, chapter 4, we spoke of the rest that God has promised. And so we concluded that the rest does not come fully or all at once, but the rest that God has promised comes in phases. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, we saw that the rest is introduced. The truth that this rest comes to its full consummation in stages. Verse 4 speaks of the creation rest stage. That God completed his work and forever sealed the reality of, among other things, this rest for the people of God. This is to be considered the first stage. So as part of his creation rest, so when it said that God completed his work and rested, uh, he, he rested, that part of that creative work was that he ordained and structured and put in motion the events that would ultimately lead to the people of God entering into his rest. Right? Okay. Okay. So, to the Jew, that full consummation did not consist in entering the promised land and living under the dictates of the theocratic kingdom. This is borne out by Hebrews 4.8, which said, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would have not afterward have spoken of another day. The rest is yet to be fully initiated, and thus we concluded last week that we must keep going and we must keep growing. All right, so moving into now Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, we read, There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. The word rest in the Greek is the word sabbatismos, from which the word Sabbath comes. It is a time when all work ceases. But the way in which this differs from the other kind of rest is that this rest is decreed and created by God, and thus it must and will come to fruition. Verse 10 gives us the second stage in this rest, or sabbatismos. Verse 10 says, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. The subject here is the he who has begun and continues into that rest. This refers to the believer, and thus this is in reference to his or her salvation. Salvation rest stage. We talked about this last week. Remember we said that when a person is brought to saving faith, 
there is a rest that he begins to enter into. And the, that rest is progressive in its expression, right? So we rest in that we no longer feel the need to work for our salvation, right? So there's rest there, right? Okay, all right. Point five, these are great and wonderful works of God that he has accomplished on our behalf. And it is with this in mind that the next warning or exhortation is presented to us in the text. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 11 says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. This work, which assures our full entrance into, into God's sabbatismos, is the full work of God and included and in was made actual by the shed blood of his son. We must be diligent means we have to be eager and to move fast. Let us therefore, or a, a literal translation would be, let us therefore start and run fast in eagerness to enter into that rest. So we, so, trying to figure out a way to phrase this properly. Remember last week I used the, the, uh, the whole historical event of the Jews coming out of Egypt and moving into the promised land. Now if you were to take that and kind of see that as a sort of a historical metaphor for what God is doing on a, on a universal scale, let, let's, let's just take that and let's say that the Jews who were in bondage in Egypt stand as a representation for humanity, right? Or the elect, the elect, all right? Some, some group of people that God, for his own purpose and his own reason, has chosen before the foundation of the world to adopt as his sons and daughters, okay? But in time and space, they're in slavery, right? So in time and space, they are in slavery, and God sends them, God sends one to them to lead them out of bondage, right? And so... That would be Moses to the Jews, but let's take it and apply it on a universal scale. He would be representative of Christ. Christ would be the one who would come and who would defeat the gods of this world, right? Because if you look at, if you look at the 10 plagues that God visited upon Egypt, each one of those plagues represented a judgment against one of the gods of Egypt, showing superiority. And so Christ, on a universal scale, to God's deemed and elect, both Jew and Gentile, Christ defeats the gods of this world, and, it's, and as it says somewhere in the New Testament, puts them to open shame, right, when he rose from the dead. And so now... He begins to lead a people out of Egypt, the house of bondage, which also stands for the fallen world order, okay? Now, 
we're out of bondage and now we're beginning to move towards that place of rest you see it you see how it lines up but not everybody who begins the journey makes it into that rest because you remember that I said two weeks ago at any given time God is working a twofold program right he's working a twofold program with many of those with most of most of those who who were led out of Egypt by Moses he didn't bring them into the promised land he began to move them to the promised land but entered into judgment with them on the way to the promised land yes so on this journey now we are beginning to move towards that place of rest right but there are things that we can do missteps along the way that can hinder us that can cause us to now that's not to say that every single one of those who well this is a this this is a question for a thought did every one of the Jews who died without entering of the king were every single one of them unbelievers no, we know Moses was not an unbeliever. Moses was definitely a believer, right? So, so is it possible that as we now look at this journey and take it on a universal scale, God's elect throughout history, both Jew and Gentile, they begin the journey, but because of choices that they make, fall along the way. All along the way. That's right. That's right. So, but but that's a hard thing to do. I'm not saying it's possible. It's no. Well, well, because we don't let go, you know, we there's the flesh wants to be master of our own destiny. I mean, when when Christ said, you don't need to worry about food and clothing. That's right. We can quote it, but can we live it? And to the degree that we can live it. Well, but it also means that we don't really believe it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so to the degree that you're able to live by the promises of faith is the degree to which you enter, you've begun to enter into that rest of this life, of this life right? So, you know, we think of eternity as something that awaits us after our death. But the reality is, is if you're if you're in Christ, you've already entered in. You're already in eternity. You, you've already entered into your eternal life. You just haven't received your eternal resurrection body yet, but you've already entered into your, into your eternal life. And here's another thing. 
Here's a good question. So why did God curse the ground? Okay, so he cursed the ground because of Adam. And where do we come from? The ground. So is it possible that this body, which is corrupt, can enter into eternity? Okay, so now in the resurrection is your body that goes into the ground raised or do you receive a new body? Well, I, I, you know, I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to answer that for you, but I'm going to recommend you go and do a detailed study of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and see and, and look at the metaphor that Paul uses when he talks about the mortal body and the resurrection body. 15. Okay. Anyway, I don't want to go too far afield here. The metaphors that he used to describe the physical body that goes into the ground and the resurrection body. All right. But how can I, so now under point two, how can I know if I'm doing this? If I am running with speed and eagerness into the rest that has been promised to me, is there some way that I may be able to discern this within me? Or is there some way that I might be able to discern this outside of me. So how, so that is the thing, is where to run with eagerness, like we're running a race, to, to make it into that rest. But how do I know if I'm actually doing it? Is there something inside of me or outside of me that will say, yeah, you're doing it, or no, you're not doing it? Well, the answer to both of those questions comes in the next verses in Hebrews chapter 4.12. And following, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than, than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word at any given moment examine and exposes what's within our heart. Although it is one among many of big fat books with lots of words, it is very much different than all the rest. We talked about this last week. It's unique. It's one of a kind. It is living. It has life. For all our modern technology, we still can't truly define it or identify it or know what its origin is. Though I now speak as a man, it just is. It has being, essence, and nature. It has life. God's word has life. It's living. This book isn't living. But what's written within it is living. Don't ask me to tell you how that is, but it is, and we know that it is. You know, so I, I think, you know, I think, uh, I think you know this, but I spent three years studying the Quran. Three years. I know the Quran better than most Muslims, and I studied the Hadith, which is the nine-volume commentary on the Quran. And I'll tell you, right away, the minute I opened it and started reading it, I said, this is not the Word of God. Yeah. 
there was a marked, marked difference in my spirit. I know I read these words and they give life to my spirit and soul. With the Quran, it was just like I was reading just words in a book, you know? So it's different. It's powerful. That, that means the Greek word is energos, which, from which we get the English word energy. We do know that energy can be harnessed for good and it can be harnessed for bad. So I was... <laughs> So I was watching the news today, oh, and the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, fired the, I think it was the attorney general. He fired the attorney general because he refuses to prosecute, blah, 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 blah. And, and in the tape portion of the attorney general speaking, he actually, he actually quoted the Bible in defense of him not enforcing laws against abortion. So God's word is, it, it can be used both ways, right? And, this, and Satan used it to tempt Christ. He used it incorrectly out of context, right? That's why, that's why I tend to not be a topical preacher because it's too easy for God's word to be taken out of context and misapplied right because that's exactly what Satan did when Christ was on the mountain he he was quoting the scriptures right but he was taking them out of context and misapplying them to Christ so it can be done and there have been many you know the the prosperity preachers you know sow your seed you know you sow your seed and god will increase it tenfold or you know they'll they'll take a uh, an obscure passage out of joel when it talks about the latter rain which is if if you're from the middle east you know exactly what that term means the early and the latter rain and they use that term latter rain to justify the outpouring of the holy spirit and the revival of the miraculous sign gifts in this day and age. You see? So, and many a people are hoodwinked by the charismatic movement. Charismatic churches far out in number. You know, independent, Bible-believing Baptist churches. Far out in number them, you know? But that's what happens, is it, and that's how they, that's how they pull, that's how they pull it off. Okay, uh, so it's powerful. We do, not, we do know that the energy can be harnessed for good and it can be harnessed for bad. This is also true concerning God's word. It justifies us, it teaches us, it encourages us, and it also corrects us. To the us here being not all of humanity, but the sheep of his fold. The Bible is not written to humanity. It is not written to humanity. It is written to the redeemed and the elect. That's why Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Okay. To the dead world, it just judges, destroys, and condemns them. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now it speaks to the twofold nature of man. Right? So when you, when you 
think of man's twofold nature, man is, he is made up of material and immaterial parts. So when it says there that it is sharper than any two-fold two-edged sword and is capable of dividing the soul and the spirit, the soul there is to be understood as the carnal, uh, that, that animating force, that animating life force that animates the carnal man or the flesh, right? We don't, we're not the only ones who possess that, right? That's the same animating force that animates all living things, animates dogs, animates cats, right? Uh, and so there's that, that life force called the soul. In, in uh, Hebrew, the word is, um, I believe it's nefesh, nefesh. It's that animating life force that God bestows on living things. When he withdraws it, that thing ceases to live. But that is different than the spirit. The spirit is that which relates to God or, or can relate to metaphysical realities, right? A dog cannot comprehend metaphysical reality. A human can, right? Uh, a fallen human can still comprehend metaphysical realities. The only thing is, is he'll always, he'll always comprehend them in the wrong way and judge himself by it, okay? So when it says that the Word of God is that sharp, is that it's able to, def to divide between those two forces in man, okay? Well, I give you an example here, or a metaphor, uh, using the concept of sex versus love between a man and a woman. Sex is the natural desire for physical intimacy, right? That would be a function of the soul, where love is the, is the desire and expression for spiritual intimacy. That's the spirit part. You see that? That's how it plays out. That's just one way in which it plays out. So sex, do, do hippopotamuses love each other? No, they don't love each other. Do dogs love each other? No, they don't. Do dogs and hippopotamuses engage in sexual activity? Why? Because that's a function and that's a desire that's ingrained into that animating life principle that God places within all living things. But that is not love. Love is something that, that is a function and is an attribute of the higher immaterial nature of living things. As far as I know, only humans are capable of love. Although many, many animal lovers would disagree with me. Uh, you being one of them, I guess. <laughs> but I'd like to see, I would admit I'm wrong in that if someone could show me definitively, definitively from the Bible where God says that animals actually have love for humans. So... So that is an example of that. 
They can both be perverted. God's word at any given time tells us if it is or is not being perverted, right? So today, in our fallen, debased culture, love is defined as sex. That's why the divorce rate is so high, because once the sex stops giving the parties the desired pop, they're not in love anymore, and they go off looking for the next one. All right. Okay. But it also says joints and marrow, the physical and life force that gives motion to meat. The joints is that which makes movement possible. Marrow is that which gives life required, life required substance to that which moves. The point here being, what is it that drives us? What is the life force that causes us to rise out of, up out of bed each and every day and do the things that we do? See, this is, this is the central question. Again, as above, they both can be perverted. God's word at any given time tells us if it is or if it is not being perverted. And then, finally, it's a discerner, that is a judge and a critic, of our thoughts, of our deliberations, of ideas, of ideas and of our intents that is what are our motives and we thank God for this because there is another reality that we all must bear in mind verse 13 and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to him to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account nothing is hidden from God God knows at any given time what it is that is, that is driving our life driving our thoughts right are our thoughts being driven our actions being driven by that that part of our immaterial being that initiates the desire for the sexual act so let's let's talk about well, let me give you a, let me give you a see if I can give you this. So there's a preacher, and this preacher becomes, you know, he's working in a church, and there's a woman who's a secretary in the church, and they're so they're relating closely each and every day, and something happens, and they end up in a sexual relationship. Now, what is now? Let's consider. Let's take the physical part out of it, and let's just consider the immaterial part of the man and the woman, right? So, the immaterial part of the man and the woman is made up of soul, and it's made up of spirit, right? The soul is that which gives the animating life force, which which propels life forward, and the spirit is that which is uh, enables the man to, to process and consider metaphysical realities. So when those two make the decision to engage in a sexual relationship, are they being driven by the soul immaterial part of human or the spirit immaterial part, of, the soul part of immaterial human, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So so 
So at any given, so here's the thing. If and when anyone has that kind of desire or any kind of illicit desire that is, that is warned against or forbidden by God's word, what should we do? Okay, I have this desire. Is this desire being driven by the soul part of me or the spirit part of me? And that's where God's word comes in and God's word is able to discern and give us guidance on what is driving there, right? And it's incumbent and, and uh, <laughs> beneficial that we would learn to engage in that kind of self-assessment or placing ourselves under the scrutiny of the Word of God because the reality is God knows it all. He sees it all. He knows instantly what it is that's driving us in any given moment, what's propelling us. Yeah. Yeah, but see, it's, it's, it's being intentional and aware enough to question the motive, question the source. What is it that is driving this, right? What's driving this? Aside from, you know, the, the physical, the physical, let's talk just about the sex act, the physical need or the arousal stage is driven by the immaterial part of all living things that God has established, has created and established for the procreation and continuation of the species, right? So, so it's important to be able to discern, and that's just using the sex one because that's the one that's most easiest to kind of pick apart and, and use it as an example. But the same holds true, let's say, in the area of work. What is driving my desire to work? Is it being driven by that part of my immaterial being that is created and placed in me to encourage and propel life? Or is it being driven by the spiritual side of me? See, because the soul part of you propels you to work because if you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't eat, you starve. If you starve, you die. Right? So, we do have an external source which will tell us in any given moment. But we have to develop the, and we do have the internal capacity. A, we have the Holy Spirit. B, we have our consciences that have been renewed. But we have to learn how to slow the moment down and kind of step outside of ourselves. Okay, what is the motive behind this? What's, what's driving this desire in me right now?
Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So how do we practice diligence? We use God's word to assess and judge at any given moment what we are thinking, saying, doing, and desiring. When we start to slip, the first thing that goes is Bible. You ever wonder why? Here is a very important clue. When our study of God's word begins to fall off, we tend to blame it on many different things, right? We're busy, you know, uh, I just, you know, whatever. But the reality is that this happens because we are beginning to slip and fall after that same example of unbelief. We make the changes that this living mirror shows us lest we be like the man that James talks about in one, chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. How is this done? We are to be what we are called to be, and that is disciples who follow a discipline. The key word here is discipline. Remember what I said last week about the race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 to 27. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run, not with uncertainty. You notice there, it's intentional. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. He has a specific target in mind. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Many of God's people underestimate the ability that God's Spirit has given them to accomplish this self-discipline. No matter what you are struggling against, God's Spirit has enabled you to overcome it and to discipline yourself. You are not the same person you were before Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And yet, in this struggle, there will be seasons of great failings. But we can take comfort and draw strength from the fact that our Savior knows what we are experiencing. Okay. Any questions or comments? Okay, and just a, a, a quick reminder to anyone who may watch this video. We are suspending the Bible study until Friday night, September 2nd. We'll resume this Bible study on Friday night, September 2nd.